Welcome to a very special episode of the Love with Elise Peck podcast. This episode is the special for season two. So this is the feature episode, which pretty much contains everything I wish I knew uh, prior to becoming a mum and in those early motherhood days. It's everything that I, I later found out and sort of patchworked and put together Um, But it would have been so nice to be empowered with this information prior to being in that messy, vulnerable early season of motherhood. It's education I feel like all women should be given and all parents and parents-to-be should be given um, before they're even pregnant, you know, so they even know about the chapter that they're signing up for, (laughs) that they're committing to. Um, uh, Yeah, so basically... I'm going out of order and I'm not even giving this episode a number. It is just the special for season two. And if there's just one one resource that you can send to a mother-to-be or a new mama that is feeling a lot of pressure and doubt about how they naturally and instinctively want to parent, um, this is the one that that I would have loved to have heard and um, and been empowered with. So please enjoy. Welcome to the Love with Elise Peck podcast. I'm your host, Elise Peck. I'm a best-selling author, certified mindset coach, psychology student, former lawyer, wife, and mother to two primary school aged girls. Today, I'm very happy to be speaking with Yvette O'Dowd. Yvette is a gentle mother and grandmother, breastfeeding counsellor, and the founder of the Southern Natural Parenting Network, which is an excellent Facebook group that I highly recommend um, you search for if you're a a parent, um, new mama, pregnant mama. Um, That has been an amazing support for me, that group. Uh, And I actually shared um, a post in that group about doing this podcast to see if any guests would want to come on. And Yvette commented on that thread and her comment was so beautiful that I actually just want to read it quickly so that you get a bit of a snapshot into um, Yvette. So I said, you know, are there any responsive mums out there and basically uh, that are stay-at-home mums and that um, have breastfed on demand and bed share, um, you know, for around three years. And there were so many replies that Yvette um, commented, she said, this makes me smile as I lie in bed, enveloped in the arms of my sleeping six-year-old granddaughter. Last night, it was a two and a half-year-old breastfed brother who was just starting regular sleepovers at granny's house. And in another room, Miss Ten sleeps alone, having only recently asked to leave my bed on sleepover nights. Having done all these things with my children and seeing my daughter do the same, We are are now seeing another generation growing up securely attached, enabling them to become independent naturally. At home, they all mostly sleep in their own beds, but the youngest still pops in with his parents at some point during the night. But he won't forever, and this chapter will close. And I just thought, oh, that is so beautiful. That is generations of secure attachment, and that is a community of people that really understand um, and allow and nurture for children to be dependent and to get their needs met, um, trusting and knowing that that they will, you know, flourish uh, at their own unique pace and, and at nature's pace. So welcome, Yvette. Thank you so much for being here. 
happy to be here and talk about something I'm pretty passionate about. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I would love to start to go all the way back and ask you if you could give yourself, if you could give your pre-motherhood self any advice about motherhood, what would that be? Do what feels right and don't worry about what other people think. Yeah. Because we send, spend so much time hearing the words of other people in our heads and judging ourselves against their values and standards rather than our own. And the reality is that long-term, it's, it's only your own choices and decisions that matter. Um, I think often we think that social media is the origin of judgment and shaming of parents, but it's always been there. It, it used to be magazines telling you what you should and shouldn't do and neighbours telling you what you should and shouldn't do. There's, there's always been somebody voicing an opinion on whether you're doing the right or wrong thing and mostly you're doing the wrong thing. Um, so it's not new, it's just a new generation experiencing it and it's damaging. It's damaging to our enjoyment of parenting our own children, which really isn't anybody else's business. Mm, yeah, so important. Um, so I would love then if you could briefly describe well, not even briefly, if you could just describe your your early motherhood years, so your journey into becoming a mom, and, like, did you always have this strength to listen to yourself or did, did the judgments of others bother you? What, what was it like for you becoming a mom for the first time? It's funny because my journey to motherhood was quite short. I had my first child four months before my 21st birthday. Um, we'd married the year earlier. I met my husband when we were 14 and 15 at high school. Um, and we didn't have time to really have any preconceived ideas, which I think was a blessing. Sometimes you've got far too much time to make plans that are all going to go out the window when you actually do the thing. So I spent most of my pregnancy reading every single book in the pregnancy, childbirth and parenting and childcare sections of the local library. I devoured everything and pretty soon I decided that there was a, a, a an approach I didn't like, that I didn't feel comfortable with and things that I did feel comfortable with. Now that was 1984 and people are often shocked to find out that there was a whole generation of people and a generation before them who were making more gentle parenting choices. I was a Dr. Spock baby, and he was actually considered rather um, out there in the, in the 50s and 60s. He encouraged parents to do what felt right for them and to practice some fairly gentle, um, permissive parenting stuff. So none of this is new. Um, what is different is that um, by the time I had my third baby in the early 90s, Dr. William Sears was, was coming into the, the, um, the zone. And I guess I read a book by him 
that described the type of parenting I'd stumbled into, and he called it attachment parenting. Um, now, sometimes people get their knickers in a twist about attachment parenting because they see it as a list of things they have to do. And if they don't do those things, then they won't have an attachment with their child. And that's, that's not what it's about at all. It's about laying down a foundation by some approaches to caring for infants and young children to help develop a secure attachment. Um, you have to do these things really, really badly your child to have no secure attachment. Um, we're not measuring that, but what we're doing is supporting that natural bonding and giving them a gentle, cushioned start to life where they are nurtured. You know, we, we use these words, we talk about nurturing indoor plants, but if we talk about nurturing babies, people think we're going to raise people who have got you know all these issues and it's ridiculous um I breastfed my first child but not for as long as I would have liked to I made some choices that are now regrets nearly 40 years later so that the guilt and the regret doesn't ever go away you just have to deal with it um I weaned her at nine months which was considered more than more than adequate in 1984 um but with my second and third children, I chose to let them wean when they were ready. And they were two and a quarter and two and three quarters when they weaned. I went from always feeling like I had to put my baby down when they fell asleep. And if they fell asleep in bed with me, that it was nice, but I still had to transfer them back to their own bed. I put all that aside when I had my second baby and I just embraced the fact that she was going to sleep in bed with us and that she would sleep in my arms when she fell asleep, even though I had a three-year-old. And we just used to read enormous piles of books. She would present me with, you know, stacks of books at feeding time because she knew I was a captive audience. And I did the same thing again with my third child. And I had one at school and one at three-year-old kinder by that stage. So often people say, oh, well, it's all very good with the first baby where you've got nothing to do all day, um, but it's not practical. Well, it is. And, you know, um, the, the tools that we use, like co-sleeping and baby wearing and freely breastfeeding whenever our babies want to, these things make it easier to do all the other things. Um, a lot of women become trapped in their baby's schedule or routine so they can't do things because the baby needs to be at home in a darkened room falling asleep at a certain time and to me that's far more restrictive than just grabbing your bag in one hand and your baby in the other one while seeing out the door to do what you need to do so you know sometimes the other side if you want to have sides in in the discussion um is presented as though this is uh you know much more beneficial to the whole family. But I would argue sometimes um, the parents are the ones that are wrapped up in a routine that they have to follow rigidly. And I never felt I needed to have that sort of restriction on life. Hmm. Yeah, that's such a good point. I um, I really enjoy being able to go out for the day with just my baby carrier, knowing that like 
if she got hungry, she could breastfeed in there. I mean, I needed my nappy bag. That was it. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And as she got older, some snacks. Um, but yeah, I'd never had to be home at a certain time or have a darkened room or any of this sort of stuff. Uh, there was a lot of, and and honestly, if I ever did think, oh, I'll try and get home at this point, she can have a sleep then, she wouldn't go to sleep. Whereas if I just went out and about and went about my day, she would sleep at different times whenever she felt. If I was walking around, she would just fall asleep in the carrier eventually. And there was a yeah. lot of freedom in that. If you're willing to allow, um, to surrender to life being a bit, to, to having to go with the flow of it. To Absolutely. Predictable. Yeah, I remember I had... Um, a relative visit at one point and, and like she was like, getting anxious that you know because she could see because it was a different day for my how old was she at the time maybe she was close to one or maybe she was nine months old but because we were out of routine there was a different person here she could feel my energy was different she wasn't really sleeping much that day and so yes it was it wasn't as calm as my usual day because I was a bit anxious because I had this relative visiting and I found this relative a bit difficult um, so the baby wasn't sleeping, but she was starting to get panicked. We've got to get her to sleep. I can tell she's, and you know, I'm like, like, we, I was like, let's go for a try and drive. The drive didn't work. Let's try walking around the, the block. And if you're adaptable and you're flexible and you take, get rid of expectations, um, yeah, it's all a mindset thing. If you allow your mind to not need rigid control, there's actually so much more freedom in being able to step out the door and go with the flow. Absolutely. It, it's a a mindset shift. I always say to people, rigid things snap under pressure. Yes. Flexible things flow, you know. Um, growing an, a, a human is incredibly complex. Um, you know, they start out entirely helpless. They're one of the most helpless newborns in the, in the whole planet. Um, and they have the most intensive longest childhood of any species um, we cannot expect them to come out and attain independence like as quickly as possible it takes years and years and years before a human is developmentally ready to be independent it's not something you can just train into them and when you when you pull apart some of those sorts of approaches to to discipline and and target none of it makes any sense you know you're not training somebody to learn to fall asleep by themselves you're training them to stop calling out for support that's all they're learning they're not learning you can't i can't make myself fall asleep i can't wake myself up intentionally i have an alarm we all have alarms to wake us up. And yet someone will say that a newborn baby is manipul manipulating you by waking up to have a breastfeed. That's the most complex behaviour. And it just, it's nonsense. Um, human babies need to feed all the time. They aren't cows. They don't behave like baby cows. And they don't behave like human babies behave when they're fed cows milk. So that long stretch of sleep that became the goal when the majority of babies were formula fed when I was a baby, um, that's not natural sleep for human babies. 
And yet it's been set as the, the bar that we're supposed to be achieving as soon as possible. I'm turning 60 soon. I don't sleep through the night. I don't think I've ever slept through the night. So it's not about being able to sleep as long as possible without interruption. Children learn with time and with a secure base that when they wake in the night, it is safe and they can go back to sleep again. If I wake in the night, I can get up and I can get a drink of water, an extra blanket, I can go to the toilet, I can check what that sound is outside the window that's a bit scary. I have the independence through a body that I can fully control to take care of those needs. A three-month-old baby has all those same experiences and none of the ability to deal with them independently. So, of course, they have to wake up the mother because the mother's body facilitates the baby's need. It's not about control. It's not about uh, just having to learn to, you know, it's babies don't learn how to sleep. We don't train babies how to sleep. No other mammal sleeps apart from their babies. They don't teach them how to sleep. They don't put them aside from them and prevent them from feeding just so they sleep longer. It's such abnormal behaviour that just makes no sense from a, a biological perspective. Um, human babies are designed to live on their mother's chest, within her arms, at her breast, by her side. That's the basics of how mammals exist in infancy it's not convenient in our society but it's not the babies who have changed it's society yes. and not for the better yeah yeah not for the better and look at how much strife we're all in and the mental health crisis and how many, you know, how many children now are estranged from their parents and have strained family relations and don't have secure attachment? How hard people are finding it to find good, rewarding, romantic relationships where they mm -hmm. have attachment. Um, you know, it's the whole the whole structure of society, the family unit is just being torn apart. Um, secure attachment is it, it's not the norm, really. Um, and it's so important. It's yeah, it's, it's so important to life satisfaction to be able to build good, safe relationships. Connection is vital to human survival. And a sense of connection is really important for our health. Um, and that can be really damaged if we're not um, given that at our most dependent, at our most vulnerable. Um, you know, and I, I last, I'm, I'm studying psychology at the moment and last subject, I, I did a, an oral, an oral presentation on a paper that was really, really recent. And it was about the separation of um, mice from their mums. And in the maternal deprivation and maternal separation units um, at the university I'm at, that's how they, that's how they create distress and trauma in, in mice to then study trauma. They separate them from their mothers. Um, you know, and I, I built the case about, you know, if this is what if this is we if we separate these mice because we know this is this is maternal deprivation this creates trauma um how can we justify routinely separating 
human babies. And like my school was great in a lecturer who's got a PhD in, in psychology and in maternal um, deprivation separation um, said she completely agrees. Yeah, she completely you You wouldn't be able to get um, approval ethically to do that study with humans. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm also doing... Um, I'm going to do some volunteering soon um, and it requires me to get a child, the Australian, what's it called, the work work with children, whatever. I had to do it at the, the latest Australian Child Protection Act um, training. And on this page it says, um, what type of abuse is this? Persistent ignoring of a child's cries for help. And you got you get the options, and I tick neglect, and it's like that's right, that's neglect. Like, thank you that someone is. That's also sleep training. <laughs> that's also sleep training. So why is doing that to a child neglect? No teacher would a teacher would be sued, uh, and you know lose their job, and they they they're not adhered to the Child Protection Act. They do that to a five year old. Why are parents allowed to do this to a baby who's? Yeah way more dependent and way more vulnerable. Um, yeah. We call these extinction methods of sleep training. I don't think it's training, but that's the terminology that we use. So in its, in its um, essence, the original sort of concept was that the child would be put in their bed and the door shut at 7 p.m. And no contact is made with that child until 7 a.m. Now, if we flip that around into daylight hours and said that we would shut this child in their room at 7 a.m. and not meet any of their needs again until 7 p.m., that would be considered to be neglect. Parenting is incredibly exhausting. Grandparenting is incredibly exhausting. Um, this is a season of intense caregiving. In our modern society, women and other, other people who are in this primary caring role have to do that alongside so many other things that aren't natural behaviours that, that we were developed to be doing so for for women to be running a home on their own raising several small children on their own isolated in a way that there is no other pair of hands available um you can't even take parental leave purely now that time away from the workforce Maybe you should do some study as well. Um, and you certainly, you know, need to um, be as fit and healthy as society deems that you should be so that you reach a, reach a, uh, a level of appearance that's acceptable. And you need to be all these other things. The human model is that you would birth within a tight-knit, village of family extended family so there were always another pair of arms to take and hold your baby um you would never be expected to prepare all the meals 
and gather all the food to prepare all the meals alone. It would be something you would do in a group. And if your day was not going well, you would be nurtured rather than being expected to prepare the meal for the entire group. That is how humans are supposed to mother. And again, just because society has changed doesn't mean our needs have changed. So we are designed to intensively mother within a group of people who are intensively nurturing us, who have birthed their own babies, who have grown up around women caring for babies. So that you've got this constant um, passing on of skills and knowledge and support. We don't have that now. It's really hard. I have been able to give that kind of support to my daughter as she's had her three children. And what we hear repeatedly is how lucky she is and how wonderful I am. And yet this is the bare minimum that we should be expecting. Um, there's, there's a wonderful theory called the grandmother um, hypothesis. And basically it's the reason that human women continue to be alive after menopause because basically from from a survival perspective I'm now a liability I'm not going to make any more babies you just have to feed me until I die so why am I still here and I'm still here so that I can help nurture the children while my daughter can focus on the youngest one and that's this this theory that female humans live longer beyond our own fertility because the human infant needs such intense care that you couldn't care for the newborn in the way it needs without neglecting the oldest, the previous child. Natural child spacing in humans seems to be about three to four years. Three or four-year-old children still need everything done for them. They're not independent. And so the grandmother or the elder women or the cousins or the sisters, all these people take on a greater role so the mother can intensely care for the newborn again. In our society, that role has transferred to the partner who also has to go to work. We live distance from our, our families. Um, my daughter and I live 30 45 minutes apart. We're not on each other's doorsteps. So there's an investment in both ways for me to support her and for her to support me. Um, but we do that because we know how hard it is not to have that. And one of the downsides but upsides of the pandemic was seeing how different that was when we physically couldn't be together. Um, my third grandchild was born in stage four lockdown in Melbourne. We saw it coming. And so I literally bolted over there four weeks before he was due and stayed till four weeks after he was born because there was no way she was going to be able to remote school one child, care for another preschool child, care for a newborn and 
survive. It just, it, it can't be done by yourself. It's so hard to do. And part of what I've done with the, the network that I created is to develop that village because we still need the village. And if we have to create it artificially, well, that's what we have to do. Yeah, and I, I I guess the sort of an answer to one of my questions is, you know, so what about those people that, you know, I just want to first clarify for a second, Spock, I thought Spock was really like Ferber and really into sleep training. No, no, no. His approach wasn't what I would consider to be gentle now, but at the time it was revolutionary. So he he said, do what feels right to the parents. Um, Ferber is an entirely entirely different philosophy altogether. Um, I've done a lot of um, looking into the history of, of sleep training approaches. Um, None of them are new. So every few years a new person wanders along and goes, I can cure, you know, I have the, it's a new solution. It's oh, it's not extension-based. It's not sleep training. They all are because any adult manipulation of an infant's natural sleep behaviour is an attempt to alter the natural pattern. So it doesn't matter how you... Uh, terminology what terminology you use unless you're going with the flow you're trying to change the flow um most of these people have come at this from a non-science based perspective with with more of a, a an approach that you would consider quite appropriate for training a dog um very much thinking that all things are behavior and with constant redirection, you can change that behaviour. That's that's not how development works. So, um, yes, I can change habits by repeatedly doing something different. That's what we're talking, not what we're talking about. Babies are not waking because of a habit. They're not eating from habit. Um, this is an entirely different thing altogether. And... I've read, unfortunately, most of the books and some of them are deeply disturbing. And you have to look at the whole perspective of what's contained in that book and what, what the desired outcome is. And it's not just about improving sleep for baby and, and parents. It's about control and setting the adult needs as more important than the infant needs. And I just believe that infant needs are paramount because they can't make choices or change their environment or their situation. They are completely at the mercy of the choices we make as adults. And that's that's really scary when you think that um, Imagine being an elderly, elderly person or a severely disabled person and every aspect of your day-to-day -day life was at the mercy of the decisions another person made on your behalf. And yet we accept that as being perfectly acceptable for a newborn. You know, they can't communicate with us. 
but they can tell us what they need by their behaviour. But if we choose not to listen to their, their calls, their signals, their clear cues of what they need, at what point is that neglect? Yeah, and I, I feel like people are too afraid to even touch the topic. Um, you know, I feel it, it is. I, I feel it, it, it. I can't comprehend the fact that the government has free programs uh, where they invite women and then separate the women from their babies and then leave the babies screaming alone in a room. I can't comprehend that the government is doing that because then it tells the mums it must be okay. The government did it. They did it for free. <laughs> Yep. But the same government says uh, persistent ignoring of a child's cries is neglect. And I'm like, what is happening here? Um, that that's It's so confronting that why is the most vulnerable of us, the most vulnerable thing, uh, given like the least amount of rights? What well, the, you know, global recommendations, federal, state recommendations all clearly say exclusive breastfeeding for the first six months of life. That means no foods other than breast milk until around six months. But breastfeeding mothers get 18 weeks parental leave. So by, by default, you are saying this woman must express milk from her breasts, which can be incredibly overwhelming. Um, in her workplace and continued to be the sole provider of milk for her baby until six months, yet not be supported to remain with her baby in that six months. And even then, um, continued breastfeeding until at least two years, if you go by the, the global recommendations, for some unexplained reason in Australia it's 12 months um I, I've never had a, a clear explanation of why that is um even so we know that breast milk is the primary food until at least 12 months and that if you're not providing breast milk you need to provide formula so if these women are going back to work at 18 weeks you are now saying you must pump sufficient milk until your child reaches 12 months or you're not meeting these health recommendations. Why not just pay the mothers to be at home caring for their own babies instead of paying other children's mothers to care for these babies? I ask this question all the time. It, yeah. I, I, yeah, I, I respect that. There are many women who want to be at paid work soon after birthing their children. And I absolutely support their choices. But so many women have not got that choice to stay at home because they haven't got that support. So we've put a lot in place to support the women who want to go back to work yeah. and nothing in place to support the women who want to care for their own babies. Yeah. This was not what I was promised growing up in, in the, the women's movement. 
in the 60s and 70s, I was told you can do anything. But what's happened is my daughter's generation, my children's generation have to do everything. That's an entirely different message. Um, and why, why are we not supportive of women to do the things that we recognise as having the best health outcomes, but putting continuous hurdles in their way of achieving them? I just, I don't understand it. Me too. Me too. I, I've been, it was such a shock becoming a new mother and realising oh my gosh, life was going to give me so much support if I was going to go back to work, but I wanted to be home with my child. And for that, it just really depended on, well, what level of support can you get from your husband? Yep. You know, the, 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 the government, they just step away. And I'm like, this is crazy because this is the root, this is the base, this is the future getting created here. So while it might not be your problem right now, <laughs> it's going to be your problem when generation, when, when the whole generation has been raised um, in a way that we know from research is not the best an ideal environment for children. We know the most ideal environment is responsive one-on-one -on -one caregiving with um, is responsive caring from a primary caregiver that your primary attachment figure uh, and to be around the breastfeeding mother and be able to breastfeed on demand. This is ideal. So I guess it's not a problem for your government. It's a problem for the government 20, 30 years from now, but it's a problem, yeah. you know, it's just. And this is the problem that, Breastfeeding is such an emotive topic. When you're seen to support breastfeeding, it's inferred that you're against formula feeding. Yeah, yeah. And it is possible. Yeah, it's very possible to just be pro-breastfeeding. Um, breastfeeding is not seen as a public health issue, even though there are so many diseases like diabetes and kidney disease and heart disease and all sorts of things that are linked back to how we're fed in the infancy. But we can't, we can't be seen to be negative about some people's circumstances that have led to them not being able to breastfeed for whatever reason. And so we can't actively promote that public health message. Um, any breast milk matters, but it's cumulative. So the longer a child can be breastfed, the better their health outcomes when they're my age. This is when it, it kicks in. You know, so lots of people say, well, I wasn't breastfed and I'm okay. Well, you're 30. You know, let's get back to you when you're in your 50s. Um, this is not personal. We are not seeking data to suit our, our ideology. The World Health Organization very clearly stated a long time ago that the best health outcomes for the planet are that all babies are exclusively breastfed for the first six months of life. We're nowhere near meeting that guideline. We never mind the continued breastfeeding for two years and beyond. Um, the last data that we had on that is just 5% of Australian babies are still breastfeeding at their second birthday. So we'll get back to that one later. Let's, let's get them 
breastfed at six months. In fact, let's get them breastfed at one week. You know, we're not even fully reaching those guidelines by the end of the first week in life because so many babies are being supplemented with formula at hospital discharge because we have brought back the discharge time right in the middle of the, the most precarious stage of breastfeeding. So women are going home around the time that the baby will wake more after the birth, increase their feeding, be quite um, irritable and fussy to come to the breast very, very frequently to transition the milk from colostrum into mature milk. That's when you're going home. If you've got any nipple soreness, that's going to be aggravated during that time. You don't have someone with you every single feed to get that attachment going well. And day three, day five is probably the, the period that babies are most likely to be given formula. Um, and mothers are doing this at home before they've connected with maternal and child health care if that's available to them. They may or may not have um, a midwife visiting from the hospital, but even if they do, one visit once a day is not the same as having somebody there every feed. And we've not put the infrastructure in place to facilitate this early discharge. I had early discharge in 1984. After a caesarean, I got to go home day seven instead of day 10. That was early discharge. Now, you can go home within hours of having a baby, but certainly within two to three days. It's just the timing that you're going home. Um, it's the worst possible stage of breastfeeding to find yourself at home alone. I've spoken to women who have just left hospital and need to hire a breast pump immediately because they don't have any express milk for the next feed. And they're in the car on the way home from hospital. Wow. I think I think all I think all hospitals should have international board certified lactation consultants available to all new mothers. Because at the moment, the support is just a random midwife that may not have that much training, um, you know, and it's just, yeah, it's really not um, in, enough support. I, I went home, I gave birth um, to my second, oh, maybe it was, a, it was around, it was at night time. I just probably didn't go to sleep until around midnight. And when we went, we went home the next morning um, with my first, I stayed in hospital two nights because I had hemorrhaged giving birth but that was the only reason I, I couldn't go home until my iron levels were stabilized and they made sure I didn't need a blood transfusion. Um, but yeah, the, yeah, I did go home really, really quickly. That's a really um, important point. And I, I think that's a really important point, especially because I think a lot of women have this natural instinct to want to be around their baby and to give everything to their baby and to listen to all their baby's cries. But I, I suspect a lot of that only comes online if the bond comes online. And I think it's, I can't help but think it's really important how much you're bonding during pregnancy, during birth, 
And in those hours, minutes, days that follow the birth, I think that's a really sensitive period of absolutely because you know when I think about um when I hear when I get flashbacks of what I heard about my mom's births and and how it was back then and my grandma's births you know my grandma when you're giving birth when the baby's crowning she got knocked out and then the baby was taken away and then later you meet this baby briefly to breastfeed and they take it away and then you meet yep imagine if you haven't formed a bond how much easier it is to just shut the door on something to not really care about it to not hear its cries, they don't really hit your system. It's going to be very different if you're intensely skin on skin, bonded with that thing. You've got the breastfeeding relationship really established and you're looking at it, you're smelling it and both of you are getting all this oxytocin and you're bonding. It's now, I think you need that to ignite um, this, well, the synchronicity between the two of you. Absolutely. Um, I I had three cesareans. Um, Back then you certainly weren't having skin to skin in theatre, even though I craved what I now know to be having my baby there. When they each time they would take my baby out of the room while I was in recovery. And it was the most unsettling experience that I couldn't verbalize what it was, but now I see it. The the difference when my first grandchild was born, after a very long three days labouring, a very intense birth with with complications. Um, She ended up with a third-degree tear, had to go into theatre to have that stitched. But my granddaughter went onto her mother's chest, had her first feed, went onto her father's chest where she stayed for two hours until her mother came back from theatre and she went back onto her mother's chest. So the only time she was out of her mother's arms would have been father's arms. Um, and then over the the following couple of days in hospital, they were never separated. The only time she went in to have a shower, myself or, or my son-in-law would be there with the baby. So the baby was never disconnected from human contact. I think that's incredibly important. There's so much science that we know now about you know, not washing the, the mother's skin, um, not washing the baby, not adding um, other smells into the situation. Um, all of these things, your know, babies have amniotic fluid trapped in their hands, which they smear on the mother's body, and that helps them locate the nipple. You know, the, the the process of that natural seeking of the breast in the, the first hour or so after birth, it's so intentional. It's so clearly naturally laid out for them. How on earth did we lose that knowledge for generations? How did we, who decided to whisk the baby away, to wash the baby completely, to wash the mother completely, to to create this artificial space where babies were taken to a nursery, lined up. I would stagger in to get my baby for night feeds because we were just starting to room in during the day with my first, but they went back to the nursery overnight. And I went in one night and I nearly wheeled away the wrong cot. 
the midwife in the nursery said, is that your baby? And I said, of course it is. And I looked down and I went, no, it's not. But it had dark hair and a pink blanket. I didn't have that with my next baby. We had 24-hour rooming in. She got to stay with me the whole time until we went home. She is the mother of my grandchildren who has done that with her babies. We can be change. We can make change. My, my granddaughters, my grandson, when they become parents, they're going to have heaven help them. Um, <laughs> two generations of people say, this is this is what we believe to be, you know, the way we raise babies. Um, it's how they nurture their their toys. It's it's what they do in play. The the two year old will set up a doll's bed alongside his bed and pretend that he's co sleeping with a baby in a in a, a arm's reach bassinet but that's not stopped him just recently moving into his own bed child driven so he told his mother he was ready to take that step um they're all very independent they're not clingy I always say to people my daughter no longer sleeps in my bed she doesn't sleep by herself she sleeps with her husband you know um, why would we expect the child to sleep alone when the parents are not sleeping alone. It just doesn't make any sense. But by seeing this, my, my grandchildren will um, carry dolls in carriers, but when they've been toddlers, they've grabbed the dog harness and slung it around their body and shoved a doll in. You know, to them, this is what you do because it's what they see. And so we can model the change to our children to normalise it for when they're caring for their children. Um, my daughter didn't have an easy journey to breastfeeding. It was like I was sitting a very serious exam and like we were ticking off the complications along the way. But that child weaned at three. The next child weaned at three. This child will wean eventually. Um, breastfeeding problems are not insurmountable in most cases but our society does an awful lot to make overcoming those challenges impossible for some people um, we have a great initiation rate for breastfeeding in australia it's actually incredibly high on a global level but it plummets in those first few weeks and it's it's sad because often people find the help they need too late they've gone past a point where they can overcome those challenges whether it's they just don't have the headspace they don't have the practical support they don't have the um, finances sometimes if you need to hire a private lactation consultant you need to be able to pay for that um often um their, their pathway has involved breast pumps and, and feeding equipment and all sorts of things. Again, there's a financial barrier for some people in that. And so nobody is judged for how their breastfeeding outcomes end. Sometimes it's amazing 
they've managed to breastfeed at all given their circumstances. It's society that's failing to give them the, the structure that they need to make breastfeeding work for them. We talk about establishing breastfeeding. Once it's established, it's very hard for you to run into your insurmountable problems after you get it established. But that's about six weeks of often really intense feeding challenges that they've got to get past, often in isolation or with very negative support around them. And that's us. That's a societal change that we can make. But that's an investment that seems too much for society. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've spoken to some women through this podcast that have been through, wow, incredible breastfeeding journeys of such determination, such resilience. Oh my gosh, because every doctor, pediatrician was telling them, just hey, just use formula, just use formula, just use. So they had to keep trying to find the person that would help them solve it. Like they had to come over so many obstacles to get there. And it's like, oh my gosh, they shouldn't have needed, they shouldn't have been given hurdles. Lack of encouragement, they should have been given more resources. Um, I would love to ask you, you know, if society was the kind of society that had the structure in place that showed that they valued mothers, they valued early childhood development, um, they early they, they valued this part of society, uh, what do you think that would look like? Like, what do you think we really need to properly support mothers and babies? I think we would start with a more linked continuum of care between late pregnancy and the postnatal period and it would be flexible so if you want to go home two hours after your birth you've got the support in place to do that if you need to stay in the hospital for 10 days to overcome those breastfeeding challenges we've got the support to do that you might move into a different wing that's more residential, but you've got the lactation consultants and the midwives and whatever support you need there. Um, ideally, I'd love to see 12 months paid parental leave. I'd like to see three years. <laughs> yeah. I'd love to see three years. Yeah. I, I'd settle at this point for yeah. 12 months. Yeah. If you are going to suggest in your your infant feeding guidelines that babies are breastfed for 12 months as a minimum. Well, you have to facilitate mother and child to be together. If you're not going to give them paid parental leave, then we want on-site childcare or support for infants in the workplace or support for, for uh, going between mother and baby, you know, work at home. Mothers have been told um, that's not possible. No, you can't do that. The pandemic hit and everybody had to work at home. And suddenly it was possible for women with computer-based jobs or telephone-based jobs that they could do it at home. The ones who really benefited from lockdowns and work at home were the babies and toddlers who could breastfeed while their mother worked. We probably saw a you know, an increase in weaning age for some children just because they could do it, you know. Um, change the way society works rather than saying, no, this, we can't make that happen. Well, you can. 
you can make change. Uh, Sweden has a, a good example. You get, um, I think it's up to 18 months time at home with a commitment from you that you will go back to work. And so the, the economy is supported in supporting you. These things aren't huge, you know, the investment. Let's make uh, IBCLC costs covered by Medicare. We suggested that to the government Senate inquiry into breastfeeding done by the government in 2008. It's still not been enacted. You can claim all kinds of health care on Medicare, but not lactation support. Lactation is as much a physical system as respiratory or like, why do we treat that? Is it a lifestyle choice to breastfeed or is it a health issue? Why are we not offering equity for that care? Why can you get diabetes support, but not breastfeeding support? It doesn't make sense. We need to have a society that not just tolerates breastfeeding women, but actively encourages and supports them. Um, we still get people contacting us saying, I was told I couldn't breastfeed here, I was told I couldn't breastfeed there. Um, when, when my first grandchild was six, nine months old, we were in a swimming pool. A group of us, our baby-wearing group, were actually meeting at the pool. And she was sitting at the side in the water, feeding her baby. And a, a lifeguard came over and said, I'm sorry, you can't do that here. It was the moment I had waited 30 years for. <laughs> I turned around oh, and said, yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, you can't say that. And this was not policy, it was opinion. And we were soon able to communicate with him that this was inaccurate. And we got an apology from, from the, the management um, who then proactively put up signage to say breastfeeding was welcome there. But it should be by default that children grow up in Australia knowing that you can breastfeed anywhere. We are seeing change. There was a recent case in Melbourne in a courtroom where the judge eyeballed a woman across the room and told her she must not breastfeed in his courtroom. Really? Yeah. Um, he did not learn from the experience. It happened again a couple of days later with a different woman. He's a judge. It's law. It's part of the Anti-Discrimination Act. He can no more do that than he could ask or tell someone in a wheelchair or someone with dark skin or someone who's vision impaired that they couldn't be that in that courtroom. So we've made a lot of progress and things are overall a lot better than they were in 1984, but a lot of it's a lot worse. So we, we sort of make progress, but we also lose some of the things that we've gained in the past.
Yeah, I, I, I think I'm still, I think part of, I feel part of um, doing this podcast and campaigning for mental health is part of my own healing process from early motherhood and from the shock of how undersupported that part of life is and how I went from being held in such high regard and high esteem when I was in the corporate world to not um, and and seen as this weird left field hippie person because I was now becoming an attachment parent, which I didn't even know that that was what it was called. I was just doing what my baby wanted from me. Um, I was just being a mother and, you know, I didn't, I didn't, you know, it was, it was such a shock and it was, I felt so undersupported. And then it was so hard when I had my second and I managed to responsibly parent them both, but I really kind of had to sacrifice myself to the cause. Um, And when I got through it and then now at primary school, I'm now like, well, that was crazy. And women should not have to go through that. And they should not be having to make a choice between their mental health or their child's. what what is going on why don't we have a system that supports both mothers and babies to have sound mental health because I something that really upset me is um, on one of the days I was having a really hard time I just needed someone to talk to I called one of the uh, mental health lines and they made me promise that I would call Trezillion, um before I got off so it, it haunts me it haunts me that mothers that are calling for help are getting told to go and sacrifice their child's mental health I'm like, whoa, why would you sacrifice my baby who has way more life left to go than me? Um, why should one of us be sacrificed? How is that the solution? How is telling me to get off the phone and promise I will ignore my baby's cries? How is that all we've got? Like I was shocked and so I never called them again. Yeah. Um, so then I was really alone and I was terrified to even go to a psychologist or anything because I was scared I'd be told to sleep train. I was scared that maybe my baby could be taken away from me if I said I was yeah. bed sharing. And so I was so truly alone while trying to genuinely be an amazing parent. And I think that's ridiculous. Um, we need more. We need more. So we, we need a little bit more honesty and safety so that um you can talk about what you are experiencing without fearing things being taken out of your control. So we know um, something like two-thirds of parents lie about their babies sleeping at night. Um, We know that people will edit the story they present to health professionals so that they appear to be doing the right thing, which means they're then not getting the proper support and information for what they're actually doing. Um, Bed sharing is a a key thing. Um, Until recently, the, the thing was that health professionals were not to endorse or support bed sharing at all. And yet we know that something like 80% of babies spend time in the parents' bed in the first six months. So those people were not informed because they informing would seem to be endorsing. Well, now you need to be given the information so that you are making an informed choice. You know the risk factors, 
and you can make a decision based on your individual risk for your baby. Babies who aren't breastfed, babies who are born prematurely, babies who who um, live in the home where there's cigarette smoking, um, these are actually the primary risk factors. A full-term, healthy, breastfed baby living in a smoke-free home whose parents understand um, about appropriate bedding use and you know, a safe environment in the bed, these babies are very, very, very low risk. But parents aren't being given that information, so they're flying under the radar. Um, people who feel judged for still breastfeeding their toddler or older child aren't able to fully inform their health carers because they're leaving out the fact, oh, I'm still breastfeeding, but my child's five and you're not going to approve of that. So I won't mention that and you're prescribing medication to me, but you don't assume I'm breastfeeding because my baby is five. And so it's this fear of judgment or consequences that prevent honesty, that increase risk. And unless you're doing actual known harm, what you do is part of the relationship between you and your child. It's not anyone else's business. And you should be able to be honest and inform people who need to know, and they should be able to inform you without prejudice or judgment. Whether or not they think a five-year-old should still be having a breastfeed at night time, that's no more relevant than whether they think you're too young or too old to be pregnant or with your mental health you shouldn't be having a baby. They can't make judgments around other aspects of this. And yet when it comes to things like breastfeeding and, and co-sleeping, there's a lot of judgment. From, from the people around it. And so we do, we go under the radar and that's dangerous. And society needs to just be supportive of the individual family's choices. If nobody in your bed is concerned about who's sleeping in your bed, then it's not anyone else's business. And it doesn't matter how old, there's no evidence of any harm at any stage from a child continuing to sleep in the adult bed. It's culturally typical in many parts of the world and it's only in um, a very narrow, white, Western, Victorian-era-influenced group of people that think that can't be healthy. Um, well. It is, and it's fine. And they move out of the family bed when they want to, when they need to. And there's no, you're not walking around the streets and going, well, that guy clearly slept in his parents' bed too many years. That child breastfed too long. You know, that child, that person over there, they were carried in a carrier. for two. You cannot see any negative impact in childhood or later life 
you can see positive impact. But people will then go, oh, well, that you can't, you can't correlate. Well, you can. Studies that are showing the benefits of, of bed sharing um, for sure. And the work of Dr. James McKenna, um, you know, poses the question, is it safe to not bed share if you are a full term, um, if you are in a safe environment, the parents aren't the influence, you're exclusively breastfeeding. Um, that is the optimal environment. And as I, I spoke about a little bit earlier with the the, the rat study where separating from nighttime creates um, trauma in other mammals, uh, we've really got a question, well, like, okay, so being in a bed, if it's not set up correctly, according to the safe sleep um, guidelines, it does increase the risk of suffocation. Yeah. Okay. But why are we only looking at that risk? What about the risk of future mental health outcomes? What about the risk of attachment issues? What about all of this stuff? Why do we only look at SIDS and suffocation? And by the way, SIDS is, um, you know, if you look at the pie charts and things like that, it's 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 higher in, in cot, in, in cot babies. Um, the SIDS rate has plummeted um, yeah. in the time since my, my third child was born. So he was a back-to-sleep baby. He was born when that came in. I think when my first child was born, it was one in 500 and it dropped to one in 1,000. Every baby matters and every reduction we can make is important. But we can't look at one lot of research that can help us reduce SIDS without looking at other research that shows things aren't a, a risk factor. There's uh, what's called SUDI, which is Sudden Unexpected Death in Infancy, and it's an umbrella term for sudden infant death syndrome and fatal sleep accidents. At one stage, the, the South Australian coroner, I think it was, came out very strong, no co-sleeping, absolute positively never. And it was important to me that I am informed about things that I'm supporting parents to do. So I looked at the coroner's report. He looked at, I think, five infant deaths. Four of those were unsafe, fatal sleep accidents. They were adults other than the mother who were alcohol affected, drug affected, on armchairs, couches, none of them were what I would consider to be optimal bed sharing practice. The fifth one, there may have been factors of bedding involved. So out of the five, all of them had risk factors that uh, are outside the safe sleep guidelines. So instead of saying nobody ever do it, that was an opportunity to highlight what you can do to reduce the risk. And we know from the work that's been done by Helen Ball and others in the UK, people are going to bed share accidentally, impulsively, unplanned. What we want to do is show them how to do it safely so they're not falling asleep on the couch with their baby in their arms because they're too scared to go and lie down in bed 
because bed sharing's not safe. Sitting up with a baby asleep on the couch is the unsafest way you can put your baby in that situation. And so that's that's research that is not highlighted in the same way that things like the back to sleep was so effectively put into place that it halved the rate. And, you know, these are not opinions. Again, this is evidence-based research. This is not hippies off in a, you know, commune somewhere deciding this stuff. Dr. James McKenna, Professor Helen Ball, these people are experts in the field and they need to be listened to and changes made so that every baby is given safe sleeping arrangements to suit that baby's risk. Mm -hmm. And many of the places where these accidents do happen, there's a whole package of, of vulnerable things within that infant's life. Um, this was a, a, a one factor that led to something happening, but there were lots of things that needed to change in those babies' environments. So a lot of parents who were worried and concerned and terrified probably the parents of the babies with the lowest risk yeah yeah I, I completely agree um dr elaine barry is another one i love her research papers um and talks about the benefits of being close and and um and dr james mckenna like she talked about uh, elaine barry talks about touch and all this sort of stuff um and how important it is that we're close to respond dr james mckenna talks about how we're regulating the breathing and it's actually very set it's it's good for um, regulating the hormones and everything it can be much safer to be kept uh, and that's just a safety thing but it's also optimal in terms of development and and feeling secure securely attached and all this other stuff is optimal um but I, it's such a good point that you've raised I'll finish up on this point because I know we've gone a bit over time it you know I found bed sharing because I was trying to be conventional I didn't even know bed sharing was a real thing someone had mentioned it off the cuff at work um, but I had bought all the things, you know, the cot, the bassinet, the, 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 and I was getting up and breastfeeding, sitting up on the bed, breastfeeding next to the bassinet and then swaddling and popping her down. Then she'd wake up. Oh my gosh, we're back. And we'd yeah. have to keep going. And I got so tired that I woke up one night and I had fallen asleep, breastfeeding on the bed. And I woke up with her sliding out of my arms, her head and a little towards the floor. And I woke up and caught her and I was like, oh my gosh, well, now I'm terrified to breastfeed this baby yeah. in the night. Um, and that's when I thought, this is so dangerous. What can I do? What can I do? And that's when I remembered this colleague had mentioned she bed shared. And so I started Googling and I found the Safe Sleep 7. We went out and we bought a hard mattress. We kind of set up our environment. And um, the next night I laid down when it was time to breastfeed her. And what do you know? She fell asleep breastfeeding and I went to sleep. And from then on, my whole motherhood journey got so much better. It changes. We got so much more sleep. I felt relaxed because I actually couldn't sleep when I put her in the bassinet. I put her in the bassinet and I um, 
I, I couldn't sleep. I would wake up and just check it and look at her the whole time. People, people say they can't sleep in the same room as their baby because they keep making noises and keep them awake. That's because they're too far away from yeah, you. I couldn't, especially because I knew SIDS was a thing. Of course, I'm shining a light, checking my baby's alive the whole time. But the minute she was next to me and I could feel her there and I could hear her breathing, oh my gosh, I relaxed. So I found the, sleep, the Safe Sleep 7 and I set up the environment and I wish someone had told me about that before I became a mom. Absolutely. And all need education on that because I think so many people give these horror stories. Well, this person died and that, like, did they die? Cause they were trying to not bed share though. And so they were on the couch mm. and they, you know what? Because I've been in that situation where it got really risky because I was trying to not bed share. It was so dangerous to not know about safe bed sharing. And I've heard countless stories and at my mother's groups, people would talk about um, very similar, like I, it, it's a thing. So I think we need absolute education on safe bed sharing because as you said, 80% of people are going yeah. to be doing it anyway, so that's the best that they're doing it informed. Um, Yvette, oh my gosh, such a joy, so powerful, so much amazing information. Uh, wow, this has been fantastic. I, I just think <laughs> if all women got this um, prior to giving birth, it would, you know, this information, um, it makes such a difference. So thank you so much, because I think not everyone has the village and the wisdom and people around them that have walked the path. And I'm just, I'm trying to create a sense of hearing other voices so that people don't feel alone, so they can hear from people that have done it. Um, and yeah, I really, I really appreciate the Facebook group, the Southern Natural Parenting um, Network Facebook group. Highly recommend that for any parents out there um, that want to listen to their intuition, their instincts and listen to their babies and feel supported part of a village through that and we have a website too yeah. which is southern natural parenting network.org okay. and that's that's where i write what i wish people knew right. <laughs> so um if you're looking for something specific and it's not there then then um give me a, a yell and i'll i'll get it there because it's it's not about you doing things because somebody says you do them. You do what feels right for you and make an informed choice so that you know why you're doing something and it empowers you to live with those choices. Um, my mother was told off for having me in bed with her in hospital. My mother was told off for still breastfeeding me at 11 months in 1960s. Um, you know, these things go back and back. But if you go right back, none of them are an issue. So we just have to get over this hiccup in history and get back to parenting our babies the way that nature designed all primates and all humans to parent their babies. Yeah, 100%. I, I could not agree with you more. Thank you. I just honestly feel really, really, really grateful Um to have had you to come chat today and to be able to share this message so that other women, you know, hopefully don't have, have as hard of a time as I did in early motherhood because they've got that knowledge and that wisdom and that awareness that other people do support their choices. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining me for another episode of Love with Elise Peck. It honestly just gives me tears of gratitude and completely warms my heart and gives me a sigh of relief to think that even one person that didn't 
previously have this knowledge now has this knowledge like just to think of even one extra person in the world hears this and it has a ripple effect and one extra baby you know has a mother that feels empowered to mother them instinctually that that that's just such a gift um so i'm just thankful that you were here and listening and yeah i would really encourage you to to share this knowledge from yvette um that she shared you know with with any new mama um or new mama to be if you have any questions please feel free to email me at hello at elisepeck.com you can find out more about me at elisepeck.com i've also put the links to those in the caption of this episode and i do really highly recommend joining the facebook group the southern uh, natural parenting network and um, checking out their website because there's blogs and resources there from Yvette and yes I think getting a community of like-minded people around you who have evidence-based knowledge that is based on what we did as humans for millions and millions of years um, and not just you know what sort of four men came up with over 100 years ago that started destroying and pulling down everything that humans had known and had worked for millions of years when it came to raising babies um, yes I think yeah th- this this knowledge is so important that we get back on track and we get mothers supported with this information and I think the more that we have this information hopefully the more that the culture of society will push policymakers to provide more support for women as more women are saying, hang on, like, you know, the current system is not at all supportive um, for the ideal development and parenting and nurturing of babies. All right. Thank you so much for being here. And please, you know, share this far and wide. And if this podcast has at all helped you, um, please give it a, a, a five-star rating and um, share it around so that so that the word can get out and that so that more mums and babies and families and society can benefit from this wisdom. Thank you. Bye for now.